Well, good morning. If you have a Bible with you, let me uh, encourage you, invite you to open it up to Psalm 98. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to use a blue uh, pew one in front of you. Psalm 98 is on the nice, nice round number, page 500. Psalm 98. So there was an English preacher in the early 1700s. His name was Isaac Watts. I say that name and some of you know who he is right away. Um, others, maybe ring a bell, you've heard it here and there before. And I suspect most of you have never heard of Isaac Watts. But it's not an understatement to say that Isaac Watts has had as much an impact on churches and the way we operate in the past 2,000 years as anyone has. And he's most famously remembered not as a pastor or a preacher, but as a songwriter. In fact, he was among the first songwriters in the church. Um, because you see, up to this time, the Anglican church in, in England, most, much of the Western church in the 18th century, 1700s, uh, the dominant state-governed kind of denomination during this time had a very mandated way they did singing in the church in their corporate gatherings week after week. And they would sing the psalms. And you might say, well, yeah, I mean, we, we sing the songs, psalms now. We sing songs based on the psalms. Um, but, but no, like they actually only sang the psalms, word for word. And if you were to hear an audio of it, I tried to pull it. It just didn't work out the way that came clearly. It was more like chanting than singing. So what would happen is in the weekly corporate gathering, you would have a single person who would stand in front of the church, and they would chant a line of the psalm. And then the congregation would respond by chanting the same line back. And that was their singing. That was their corporate worship. Taking the actual words of scripture, adding a little bit of rhythm, but really it's basically talking with rhythm. And I'm pretty sure if I had to sum up my singing style uh, as I was reading these things and doing my research, I was like, I'm pretty sure I just talk with rhythm. I don't think I sing. And that's why I'm very subconscious that I'm not, uh, my mic is not being blasted out during the worship time. Have to mute that every single week. Because it's not good rhythm, even if talking. But anyway, okay. So Isaac Watts uh, saw that tradition and um, thought it was just lacking a little bit. Thought it became um, emotionless. He's seen the faces of the people he's worshiping with. Nobody's really thinking about what they're saying. Nobody's really into it. Um, there's no kind of angst. And so he takes this radical, rebellious step of writing hymns paraphrased scripture that, that conveyed the truth of the word without actually being the psalms, just line for line. So writing his own lyrics in stanzas, experimenting with different kind of tempos. And um, so this may sound shocking to you, but you see, people in churches hated change. <laughs> back then, back then, they hated change, not a problem anymore. But so Isaac Watts was like public enemy number one in the Anglican church because people deplored this new method. They thought it was heretical. They thought it was useless. Um, but we know, being able to look back on history and seeing history play out, that this method, this rebellious, radical method of writing your own songs based on the truth of Scripture, it, it won the day. And Isaac Watts, along with his friends, John and Charles Wesley, began this kind of new wave of pastors who were not just preachers, but were also songwriters. Many songs of which we still sing in our corporate gatherings today, 300 years later, 
Okay, that is something that no pop star in 2018 who's at the top of the billboard charts can say that in 2318, we're still going to be singing their songs. It just doesn't happen anymore. Like five months down the road, we're like, you remember that song way back in like the summer? <laughs> but here we are, 300 years later, still singing a lot of Isaac Watts' songs. And one song I want to highlight that I'm pretty sure all of us have at least heard of, and many of us in here can sing the majority of it by heart. It's a song that was written in 1719, and the original title was this, The Messiah's Coming and Kingdom. You don't know it by that title. You probably know it by another title, which will become obvious when I read, not sing, the first verse. (laughs) Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. One of the most popular Christmas songs that you're going to hear a lot in the next five, six weeks. Joy to the world. But did you know that Isaac Watts did not write this as a Christmas song? Christmas was nowhere in his mind when he wrote what we know now as Joy to the World. We'll come back to that in a bit. But this morning, we're going to spend a few minutes talking about Advent. And it's kind of a pre-Advent sermon, because if you know the liturgical calendar, uh, Advent begins four Sundays before Christmas Day. So that is technically next Sunday, December 2nd, is the beginning of Advent. So that makes today pre-Advent. Just go with it for this year, all right? Just hang with us. It's going to be a pre-Advent sermon. And, and honestly, as a staff, when we were kind of talking about this, we do think that there is a purpose and a benefit to explicitly digging into what is Advent before we get into the season. Because um, here's the reality. Everybody in this room is in one of three boats this morning. Um, first boat is you know what Advent is and both its meaning and its purpose, what its history is and why we do it year after year. And if I called you up and gave you the mic and say, tell it, you could tell it. The second, and probably the majority of us who have been around churches to some degree growing up, you, you, you've been around long enough to know in general, Advent is associated with Christmas in some way. It's Advent, and that kind of means Christmas, but it's not actually Christmas. But if they're honest, they might not really be able to tell you why or what it means or why we do it. And then the third boat is those who you're in here this morning. You're like, I have no clue what Advent was. In fact, this is the first time I'm even hearing of it. And here's the thing. That's awesome that we're all across the board in that. But here's my hope. By the end of this morning, in about 30 minutes, if you stay awake, that we're all going to be walking out knowing what Advent is in both in meaning and purpose, and why it's so important in the life of a local church in 2018. So to start at its simplest form, Advent is a word that means coming. It means arrival. So when we talk about a season of Advent, four weeks before Christmas Day, it is a season of anticipation of what's coming, of anticipation of an arrival. And there's no exact date when Advent became a prominent part of the church calendar, but we know it was being practiced as early as the 5th century. And its intent, which is ironic, we'll talk about that later, has always been to slow down. To slow down as a church and identify with the reality of what it's like to live in anticipation of Christ's arrival. 
Noelle Piper, she says it like this, for four weeks, it's as if we are reenacting, remembering the thousands of years of God's people were anticipating and longing for the coming of God's salvation for Jesus. So we are anticipating Christmas Day, the day that we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. But for the church today, hear me, on this side of the cross, on this side of the empty tomb, knowing what Jesus came and what he did, that is only half the story of Advent, of waiting for Christmas Day. Because Advent is not just a reenactment of the thousands of years Israel was anticipating the coming of the Messiah. It's also a reminder every year that we get that we, as God's people, are still waiting. We are still in a time of waiting now for the return of Jesus Christ. And I read the end of the book. This time it ain't going to be in a manger. And it's not going to be as a baby boy. But he will be coming, not in obscurity, but for all to see that the king is returning and fulfilling his mission to rule and reign over his kingdom. So for four Sundays, starting next week, we're going to focus on the theme of joy. Two years ago we did hope. Last year we did love. This year, the theme of joy in this season of Advent, and we're going to begin each week starting in the book of Isaiah, a book where there are more explicit prophecies and promises about the coming king, both his first coming and his second coming, because a true Advent includes both. But for the rest of our time this morning, I just want to whet our appetite a little bit and then finish with a challenge. I want to start to prepare our minds and hearts for this season, because we all know you're going to blink and it's going to be Christmas Eve. So how can we prepare for the season, get the most out of it that's actually going to impact our lives? And that brings me back to the song, Joy to the World. Because Isaac Watts wrote it based on Psalm 98. And he wrote it about the second coming of Christ. So while Joy to the World might not be a Christmas song, per se, it is an Advent song. Because a true Advent includes looking ahead to the joyful anticipation of the second coming. And as you think about the topic of joy related to Advent, you know what's striking to me? That it's, it's increasingly popular in our very secular culture to love the Christmas season even if they have no regard for Jesus. Even if they have no regard for what it means. People love Christmas time. You see that? all over the place, and the reason is because there's this hope of joy that always comes with it. There's this hope and promise of joy that they might not even be able to nail down why they think that way, but they think that way. I was just at the gym yesterday morning, and I hear a nice guy talking to two or three other guys, um, not a believer, uh, but as he's talking to them, he just says, yeah, man, like, I'm just looking forward to these next six weeks. Everyone's just happier everywhere you go. And everybody that's around him, like big, tough gym guys, you're like, yeah, I know, everybody's just happier. And, and you know what? Like, that's just a mentality that we all have, that these next six weeks, life is going to be great. Everyone's going to be happy, even in New Jersey. <laughs> like, you're still going to get cut off on the road. You just might not get the finger as you're getting cut off. Like, Merry Christmas. I'll be back in January. But even if we can't nail it down, isn't this true like Christmas time? It's the best time of year. And everyone's anticipating a season of great joy, even if they can't pinpoint why. 
And more often than not, it leads to post-Christmas blues after the fact. That's a real thing. Look it up. A psychological disorder that many people go through because Christmas did not promise on what they hoped it would. But even aside from all that, we can all agree, no matter where we are with Jesus, no matter where we are in our faith, we can all agree with this. We want joy, don't we? Like real joy. Like not just ethereal thoughts. Like I want to wake up with some joy. I want to go about the things that I'm doing in my life with joy. I want to go to bed with joy. So what's the true joy of Advent and how the heck do we get it? That's what we're after this morning. And I want to spend a few minutes digging into Psalm 98, the psalm that motivated the rebellious Isaac Watts to write a hymn that we know as joy to the world. Psalm 98. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the people with equity. Psalm 98 is a praise song through and through. In fact, it is one of the most joyous psalms out of all the 150 we have in our Bible. It is loud. It is vibrant. It is this vivacious song from beginning to end, and it is all about God as our King and Savior. And it tells us about the nature and the source of real joy in God's people. And here's what I'll just say up front. Here's one of the most important parts of this whole psalm and sermon. That at no point does the author describe their present circumstance. We do not know if this person is in a season of happiness or if they're in a season of complete discouragement and despair. Because joyous worship is not contingent on present circumstances for the people of God. And there's no truth we need to be reminded of more often than this, that your joy is not contingent on your current circumstances. Your happiness is. But this is where happiness and joy separate. In the world, they don't separate. You're joyful if you're happy. The Bible shows you this other way, that it is possible to not be feeling happy in your present feelings and still be joyful in the Lord to the point of worship. You know where this is most vividly portrayed in the Bible? It's really all over. I could go dozens and dozens and dozens of examples, but most vividly, most scandalously, is in Job chapter 1. After Job lost all his children, like can you imagine all of his children, all of his possessions? This is the first thing that comes after that moment. In Job 1 verse 20, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. 
Like, what do we do with that? I don't, I don't know what to do with that outside the Word of God. That makes no sense. That, that, that would even be wrong. But, it, but it's there. That Job worshipped in the midst of the most painful moment in his life. How? Why? It tears into this fallacy that the hope of the Christian faith is that everything will just go well for you the more faith you have. If you just have faith, if you just believe a little bit more, believe a little bit better, then everything's just going to be smooth and God's just going to give you everything and, and that's just the Christian life. You believe more, you'll be happier. And that is not the message of the Bible. And the reason why so many people are drawn to it, not only in our country but internationally, is because everyone wants to be happy. And so they think, well, if I do this, it's like a formula. If I believe that, I'll get this. But if you're going to read our Bibles enough, we need to know we're going to tear that lie down. And we have to put that out to pasture because it will utterly fail us the very moment we need it most. So if that's not true, if our joy and hope and faith is not rooted in the life of just being presently happy all the time, where is joy rooted? Psalm 98 tells us, first, true joy is rooted in what God has done. Did you notice in that psalm, verses 1 through 3, it's all past tense language. Sing a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness. He has remembered. All the ends of the earth have seen salvation of our God. It is a declaration of a deliverance that has happened in the past. And we're not told what specific event this psalmist is actually talking about in Israel's history. It could be dozens and dozens, hundreds of victories to choose from that God has done for his people, Israel, in the Old Testament. But we're not told what he's talking about. And surely those who are singing this, that's not a problem for them because they themselves can recount all the times God has done things for them in the past, both as a nation and individually. Surely, surely all of God's people can recount times in the past that God has done mighty things in their lives. And God's people should do this regularly. You know why? Because we're prone to forget. We're pr prone to just live in the moment with tunnel vision. And we tend to forget that God has done mighty things for us in the past. And it is just good practice to find yourself recounting victories in your life that God gave you and then give him the glory for it. But here's the thing about Psalm 98 that is obvious for us is that it was written before Jesus even was born. It was written before the days of Jesus Christ. And yet when we read Psalm 98 from where we stand in history, like doesn't this make so much sense through the Christmas story? of God sending his son into the world. Like, it almost makes more sense for us than Israel who was singing it when it was first written. Because for the man or woman who have professed faith in Jesus Christ, no matter how many great and awesome things that you have experienced in your life, the best thing that ever happened to you happened when God sent his son into the world. I just want to know if you believe that. Nothing will fan the flame of joy in your soul more than setting your sights on the glory of Jesus Christ who was sent into the world to deliver you from sin and bring salvation to your soul. God sending Jesus is the greatest act worth worshiping. I just want to know, do you believe that? 
when I was studying this passage, I came across a commentary by James Boyce. It was just gold, his commentary on the Psalms. And he makes this compelling case that when Mary was singing her famous song in Luke chapter 1 called the Magnificat, that she had Psalm 98 in her mind. So the Magnificat, for those who don't know, was Mary's response to being told she's pregnant with God's child. How's your day been? All right? Like, like so, and she kind of goes and visits Elizabeth, and she spends some time with her, and Elizabeth is just being like, like giving God all the glory for what has happened in Mary. And Mary, this song is just this explosion of how, God, how she responds to this fact that she is pregnant with God's child, and she's processing what it means. And look at the parallels. We'll have it up on the screen to Psalm 98. First, Psalm 98. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. And Mary in Luke 1. My soul magnifies the Lord, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. Psalm 98. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Luke 1. He has shown strength with his arm. Psalm 98, the Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. Luke 1, his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. Psalm 98, he has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. Luke 1, he has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful. Mary's joy is rooted in what God's greatest act in history was, sending his son to be born as a man to fulfill his promises to Israel. And in Mary's vantage point, no one knows this yet. She knows, but the rest of Israel doesn't know. The rest of the world doesn't know that God has done this. It has happened. She is pregnant. And this joy rooted in what God has already done is what's going to sustain her through a really difficult present circumstance. We often forget this with the Christmas story. This was a difficult path for Mary. Like, let's not be careful to over-romanticize what this pregnancy means for her immediate future. Because while it absolutely humbles her to know that the God of the universe has bestowed his grace on her, this path of obedience is going to be difficult. You know the story. She's betrothed to a guy named Joseph. Betrothed is a legally binding commitment. It's basically an engagement on steroids where no sexual relationship is permitted, but you had to get a divorce in order to break it. And here Mary is, pregnant. You know what's hard to do? Hide being pregnant. Look in the first row at some point later. <laughs> and not only does she face this anxiety of the stigma of being pregnant in her culture when she's not supposed to be, she was fearing whether or not Joseph would believe her. This is kind of a crazy story, isn't it? That Joseph's now supposed to believe. And we know from Matthew's account that Joseph did plan on divorcing her. He wanted to do it quietly. He didn't want to totally destroy her. But listen, they are engaged, and they have not been together, and she's pregnant. Do the math. Until an angel appeared to him to convince him not to. But if he went through with it, really, Mary has two choices. One, she'd be accused of adultery, which still in this first century Palestine Jewish environment, she could be stoned. And if she wasn't accused of adultery, but just merely abandoned by Joseph, she would have no rights. 
her and her child, likely never find somebody else to marry because she's been ruined, and now she is rendered an unwed single mother in first century Palestine, virtually helpless. And that is the path that is unknown for Mary when she is singing this song. And in the unknown, by faith, she can still say, the Lord has done mighty things. He has remembered his promises, and she worshiped in joy. This is why Mary's my favorite character in the Christmas story, aside from Jesus, all right? Like, I mean, we get that, but like she, because I think oftentimes we picture Mary, we see images of her, she's just this little girl, just like, oh my gosh, I'm pregnant with God's child, like really passive and really uh, weak. You know what? Mary is fiercely faithful in this, and she's the strongest character in all the gospel stories. You know who didn't really believe? All the strong men who were hearing from angels and, uh, uh, and uh, Joseph, and they're having all these doubts, and they're thinking that we can't do this, and you have this little teenage girl who is fiercely obedient to Jesus when she hears it. And I wonder if those of you in here this morning, if you were to describe your present life as that you were fighting for joy, and that there is a present circumstance where you are physically or financially or emotionally just beat up. Where you might think, yeah, I know God sent his son to come and deliver me from slavery of sin and free me to a transformed life, but, but you know what, pastor, I'm going to walk out these doors, my problem's still going to be there. And I'm still going to be struggling. And things still need to be decided upon and resolved. And they don't just go away by thinking, Jesus died for me on the cross, now my life's awesome. Like, if we can be honest, have you ever thought that? Like, this, this sounds really great sitting here, but I go outside and life's still there. There's a pastor who's also a rapper named Trip Lee. I don't know what the Anglican church would have done with him in the 1700s. <laughs> But I, I just read this quote in recent days that just perfectly aligned with this morning, this idea of fighting for joy when you're not living a life that should be joyful. He says this. It's a little bit of a long quote, but it's be on the screen. Follow along. He says, if I don't set out to find or achieve joy in God out of any given day, I just won't have it. One of the unlikely gifts of the suffering that I have been through in the past few years with chronic fatigue which is small suffering compared to a lot of other people's, but one of the things that it does is it tears down some of the idols that I look for for joy. I tend to define my joy in success or my own spiritual performance, so when I wake up in the morning, that is what I'm tempted to go find my joy. And if I don't, find, if I don't fight to find it in God, I just won't find it at all. So the main thing I'm doing every day to fight for joy is to look away from those and fight until I really look to Jesus. So here's this really practical example. Someone who's, just, who's waking up with chronic fatigue, suffering in this, threatening to rob his joy, and he says, honestly, the reason why it's robbing it is because I'm finding my value in my spiritual performance. I'm a singer, I'm a performer, I'm a pastor. And so I find my success to be the root of my joy. He says, what this really does, what this chronic fatigue, he says, this suffering's a gift because it's showing me I can't find my joy there. It's going to fail me. And so every day it's a fight to find joy in God, eyes fixed on God. Because joy is not had by mitigating present circumstances and acting like it's not a big deal. It is a big deal. 
Chronic fatigue, I think, would be a big deal. We could go across the room. There's a lot of things going on in your lives that it's a big deal. So it's not to mitigate that. That's not the answer. The answer is to gaze upon the truth that God has done a mighty work in sending his son, and nothing in this world can make that untrue. And it's not easy. It requires the patience and constantly preaching this to ourselves daily, this ancient truth that the best thing that ever happened to us happened 2,000 years ago when a baby was born in Bethlehem. Because it was the fulfillment of a promise that God will never leave you. God will never forsake you. And he has chosen to step into the mess of life in order to redeem you from it. And that's not a light switch that goes from off to on, but it's a diligent pursuit, a daily fight where the joy will rise more like a dimmer in your life over time. But be patient and keep fighting and don't let up. Mary refused to fight, refused to give up. She just kept walking forward in obedience, unknown of what was to come, and you can too. So true joy is rooted in what God has done, but that's not all. Psalm 98 also lays before us that true joy anticipates what God will do. So first past and now future. The last two verses of the psalm, let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the earth with righteousness and the people with equity. The final note of this joyous, praiseworthy song ends with this assurance of future joy for all who put their faith in Jesus Christ, of what God promised he will do. And this is the promise that we are still fully aligned with in, with the psalmist in 2018. This is the promise that inspired Watts 300 years ago to write this song because this is a glimpse of the return of Christ. When he will establish his rule and reign on earth and definitively destroy evil for good. Like, do you know what that means? This anticipation of what's coming. It's why we're still in a season of Advent that we'll have perfect communion with the Father that we'll have perfect community with one another, that there'll be no pain, no sorrow, no guilt, no waking up in the middle of the night with shame, no loss of loved ones, no stress. Because when he returns, he will judge the world with righteousness. No one will be cheated out of that, and no sin will be unpaid for. Every sin in the history of the world will be accounted for in the final judgment in one of two ways. It will be paid for and forgiven on the cross when Jesus died, or it will be paid for in eternal judgment. And this is where our victory and hope lies for the people of God, that though we are all sinners who fall short of the glory of God, we are guilty in rebellion against him, we are deserving eternal judgment, that through repentance of our sin and faith in Jesus Christ, that we would receive the forgiveness of sins and with it salvation and deliverance for all of eternity. Like, are you kidding me? That is the offer that is laid before us. And so the hope is that your utmost joy at its deepest, truest level is available and vivacious in faith. This is the application of Psalm 98 for the church today, for Grace Church, that faith produces worship and worship produces real joy. Real joy is rooted in the belief that God sent his son into the world 
and the assurance that God will send his son again. Past truth, future promise, and we get to worship in the present. Make a joyful noise before the king, the Lord. And here's the reason. It's in the process of worship, even in life's difficult moments, that the joy comes. This is really important, that we don't just worship when we feel joyful. I feel joyful, so I'm going to worship. You know what the Bible says? We feel joyful when we worship. You know the difference? That joy comes through worship because it's a worship of God that produces joy in God. So make a joyful noise. Do you feel like you're being robbed of joy? Do you feel like you're fighting for joy? Gaze upon Jesus and worship. It's in the process of worship that joy comes, not after the fact. And this is the true joy of Advent. This is what a world wants but can never experience without Jesus Christ as their Savior and King. The world wants joy, man. Everybody's hoping it's coming in the six weeks, I don't know, out of thin air. But the world can only experience true joy through faith and worship of Jesus Christ. They can get happiness. The world can be happy. The world can be rich. And the world can be any number of things because of God's common grace over all his creation. But joy, real joy, is only had by gazing upon the blood-bought, grave-defeating, forever-reigning salvation of Jesus Christ. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. So we're in pre-advent, remember? We're on the brink of this season. And beginning next Sunday, it will be four weeks of anchoring our joy in what God has done, as well as the assurance of God what, what God will do. So let me end with a challenge. My challenge is simply this. Don't waste your advent. Grace Church, do not waste your advent. And we want to come alongside you as practically as we can that you can take advantage of your advent because if you heard brian giving up the list of dates like that is like a fraction of all the dates you have on your calendar don't you like this time of year like it's unbelievably insane how full the calendars can get where again six weeks it's a blur it's christmas eve before you know it here's the challenge to fight because it's going to be a fight to intentionally cultivate ways to slow down and fix your eyes on Jesus in a way that produces joyous worship. And we as a staff want to set you up for success. We want to put the ball on the tee, bat in your hand, and just put you right in front of it, where all you need to do is swing. Because Advent is not just Sundays. It's this whole season of four weeks leading up to Christmas. And so uh, this week, you're going to get an email from our communications director, Mary, where our staff has compiled some resources and tools for you to take advantage of your Advent season. So we're going to get uh, Advent devotionals for adults where married couples can do together. Uh, if you're single, uh, text somebody in the church, outside the church, this devotional and say, hey, could you do this with me? And let, let's talk a couple times throughout this Advent season, keep each other accountable to it, keep our eyes fixed on Jesus together when the rest of the world says, I want you to look elsewhere this Christmas season. Um, families, you already know if your kid is in kids' worship. Every month, Megan provides a kids' worship uh, pamphlet for you to be doing this at home. And her desire is to see you um, leading your family in worship at home. She gets an hour on Sundays. You get a whole lot more during the week. And so, again, she just wants to constantly be providing you ways you can do that. And this season, starting next Sunday, there'll be down in kids' worship a packet for you to be able to lead your family in Advent devotionals. 
So these are just some of the ways that we're going to be getting to you, that we've created some content here, we'll, or, or we'll point you to some other places that have produced good content to have a regular time of worship through this Advent season. They're going to keep your eyes fixed on Christ. They're going to keep your heart joyously worshiping in Him in such a way that produces even more joy. And then secondly, Advent is the acted out anticipation of God giving his son. And where grace is received, grace flows. So here's a question. Where can you give of yourself this Advent season? Where can grace flow through you? You see, because if God works in you, he will work through you. When God blesses you, he does it so he can bless others through you. So where can that happen? Again, if we just hope we'll stumble into it, it won't happen. To sit down with some intentionality uh, with a friend, with a family, to say, hey, where can we be generous in these next six weeks? Where can we frame up and find some avenues that we can just live open-handed and bless the kingdom of how much can we give, not how much do I have to give? Where can we bless others with some of our time and just serving others where there is need? Where can I use some of my talents that God has wired me to go help and bless others in the church and outside of the church? And most importantly, who is somebody in this Advent season that you can share your faith with, share your story with of how God saved you? Where can you be a witness? Something tells me in the next six weeks people might be a little more open to hearing that than other times of the year. So where can you give yourself where are you going to worship this Advent season? And church, don't waste it. It's a real opportunity before us all to keep our eyes fixed, not just on the first coming of Christ in Christmas, but on the second coming of God's promise to return. And this can be a wonderful time of renewal in your heart. And so we're going to start together by singing this 300-year-old song, this Advent song, Joy to the World. Let's pray.